Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, political hypocrisy and travel witch hunts, the normalization of masks, and Mark Emery on his return to politics. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to another edition of Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Not broadcasting from Hawaii, not from Palm Springs, not from Mexico. No, we're here at The Andrew Lawton Show, London Bureau of True North Studio, as we have been for much of the past year. Unlike the politicians who are telling us all to stay home and not leave, even for, you know, groceries if you want to go more than once a week or whatever the case may be. We'll talk about all of that and more in... In this edition of the program. Last year we did, or last week, I guess it was last week and last year, come to think of it, we did the Year of the Hypocrite, a show that looked at some of the early stories of politicians, the ones who have been telling us to hashtag stay home, save lives, actually themselves deciding to travel. And I have to revisit this because of how many more have been added to that list in the few days since the previous show. We had just a a small handful at the time from Ontario Finance Minister, I guess former Ontario Finance Minister Rod Phillips and Alberta Municipal Affairs Minister Tracy Allard. Both of them have now resigned. But the list of MLAs and MPs that have been traveling, that have been going abroad, has actually become quite monumental. We had to, at True North, put together an exhaustive list that has them all, and, and we're continuing to update it when more emerge, of people who have at some point in the last 10 months since uh, we had these lockdowns put in place have decided not to follow their own rules. And it's not just about travel, by the way. It's also about someone who had a Thanksgiving dinner with this person, an Easter dinner with this person, Justin Trudeau going to visit his family in uh, Harrington Lake when he was telling everyone else not to visit their family for Easter, and Justin Trudeau going to the Black Lives Matter rally in Ottawa when, again, he was telling us to stay home and not do anything or, or go anywhere. So in that sense, travel is not in a unique category. Travel is just one of the ways in which political hypocrisy is manifesting itself. And I do feel like a lot of people are are kind of missing the point right now that travel itself is not the problem. If someone who has been uh, entirely consistent on this and says that, hey, you know what, I think people can make up their own mind as long as they follow the rules, if someone like that travels, that's a lot different than someone doing what the Ontario government is doing, which is locking down everyone, telling everyone not to go, and then Rod Phillips saying, hey, I'm going to go to St. Bart's. Or something like that, which is why I was a lot more sympathetic to the Albertans, a lot more sympathetic to the people in the Alberta government, because Alberta has actually been fairly pro-travel. So I was actually quite frustrated with the Jason Kenney response to this because on Friday, Premier Jason Kenney was saying, you know what, I never told everyone not to. Yes, I've asked everyone to come home, but I'm not going to put any further punishments forward. You fast forward to Monday, new year, new era, and what's happened is Jason Kenney has fired people. His uh, chief of staff, he's asked him to resign. His uh, minister, his MLAs that were on committees that had legislative roles, they've all had to resign as well, all because they did what just a few days earlier, Premier Kenny admitted he hadn't actually said not to. 
So Jason Kenney's approach to this had been, and the Alberta approach had been, you know what, if you're going to do it, follow the rules, follow the law, but do it safely. And now that has flipped. Because there was a lot of backlash, a lot of outrage, people that were pushing for these people to be fired, whereas my view was kind of different from a lot of other people, and I would say a lot of people on the right, in that I was saying, let's not throw the book at these people, let's actually just start ripping pages out of the book. And that's an important distinction because I don't want the race to the bottom of having everyone point the finger at everyone, having everyone snitch on everyone, and then having no one left who can do anything. I would rather say, hey, let's use these politicians as an example, which, you know, dangerous words, but let's use them as an example to prove that, yeah, people that are intelligent yeah, okay, politicians, but, you know, let use them as an example that people can make their own decisions, be safe, be healthy, and be responsible about it. And that's the whole point of this. So I don't want to throw the book at people because, again, the book is just too heavy as it is. And that's the fight that I've been waging for the last 10 months. But if you look at the list here, when I say that the media has kind of missed the mark on this, what I'm talking about is the way that everything is being lumped into the same basket and viewed as though they're all kind of on moral equal planes. For example, a Brampton West MP, a liberal, Kamal Kara, said she went to Seattle for a loved one's funeral and it was a socially distanced funeral that had fewer than 10 people there. I don't really fault anyone for doing that. Nikki Ashton, as well, said that on one hand, we need more lockdowns. She lives in Manitoba, which has been one of the most lockdown parts of Canada. She then went to Greece to visit a dying or ailing grandmother. Now, again, I'm going to say that for someone who has been arguing for more lockdowns, for a a broad strokes approach to this, to say, ah, you know what, I'm going to pick up and leave the country, that's probably not the best idea. But for Kamal Kara, who went to a funeral in Seattle, I'm, my issue for the whole period of lockdown in Canada has been how dare government deny people the right to grieve? How dare government deny people the right to have funerals? So I'm not going to fault anyone for wanting to go to a loved one's funeral if they've passed away. So this is where I feel that, again, it brings home the point that the travel itself is not the problem. It is the hypocrisy behind this. And if we lose sight of that aspect of this battle, what we're doing is we're setting up a a paradigm in which there really isn't a way that anyone can emerge from this era unscathed, which isn't what we want. It's not what I want anyway. What I want is for all of us to have a responsible, evidence-based approach to this thing. You know that buzzword that Justin Trudeau loves using, evidence-based policy? Well, where is it on lockdown? We know that lockdowns are not working. We know that blanket travel bans are not working. Oddly enough, the same government whose health minister, Patty Haidu, said that travel bans are borderline racist earlier on in the pandemic is now uh, the same government that's trying to lock everything down and make it more difficult for people to move. I mean, this latest restriction that they've put in place, where if you want to fly into Canada, you need to have a test. You need to have a negative test. This is only serving to prevent people from traveling. It's only trying to prevent people who are in Canada from traveling outside of Canada. Because if you are someone in, oh, let's say Red Deer, Alberta, or Toronto, or uh, Vancouver, or wherever, and you want to travel somewhere, fine. A lot of the sunny destinations require you to have a negative test before you can go there. So that's fine. You're in Vancouver. You can get a PCR test. You can have it come back negative. You can get on a plane and go to the Bahamas. Great. Well, now in order for you to fly back to Canada, you need to find on your 
your sunny Bahamas beach at PCR so that you can board your flight back to Canada. A lot of these tests are not available or at least not readily available or they're very expensive or the turnaround time is inconsistent. So basically a lot of people will not travel because they don't know if they're going to be able to do what they need to do to get back. And this is where we have to look at what the government is doing here, which is not banning travel, but making it so prohibitive that a lot of people simply won't be able to do it. And this negative test result before you come back really doesn't do all that much because we already have a mandatory 14-day quarantine upon your return. So even if you do have it and you come back, you're already going to dry out, so to speak. So that negative test result really doesn't do all that much. It doesn't exempt you from quarantine. All it does is give this illusion of security, this illusion of control, and this illusion of safety. So when all of us in the country are trying to figure out ways that we can survive what's happening right now, I don't fault anyone for saying, you know what, I think there's a safe and responsible way that I can go to Hawaii. If they're a politician, great. If they're not a politician, great. The problem is that we need to make sure that behaviors are matching the rhetoric. Because right now what government is trying to do is make it so it's so prohibitive and so difficult to travel that no one can do it without actually saying travel is banned. Because I don't even know if they could ban people from leaving the country, let alone should. I know they shouldn't. Could they? Well, I don't want to give them ideas. But you look at the list here. Conservative Senator Don Platt, Fort McMurray Wood Buffalo MLA Tanny Yao, Liberal MP Alexandra Mendez, Liberal MP Lynn Bissett, Liberal MP Patricia Latanzio, Liberal MP Samir Zuberi, Liberal MP Kamal Kara, Conservative MP Ron Liepert, Alberta MLA Jeremy Nixon, Calgary MLA Tanya Fur, Nikki Ashton, the NDP MP, Tracy Allard. The list goes on and on and on of politicians from all parties, from all regions, who in some way have been part of the advisory apparatchik telling people not to go anywhere, but themselves decided, you know what, there was a way to do it. Should these people resign? Should they be punished? Look, that doesn't bother me as much as the underlying issue has, which is if there is clearly a way that we can live our lives, why are we being denied that right? Or why are we being advised against it? Because I had a lot of response to the previous show saying, well, hang on, you're missing the point, Andrew, because travel is not against the rules. If government is telling you not to do it, whether or not they are banning you from doing it, they are using the arm of the state to tell you not to do something, to urge you not to do something. So the idea of someone in violation of that, a politician who's part of it uh, doing that, is still very much hypocritical, even if the act itself, the act of travel, is quote-unquote legal. So I don't want to get too much into the weeds on those parts of this, because what we know is that a lot of MPs and MLAs who even tried to and succeeded in sneaking out of the country months ago are now owning up about this because there is this travel witch hunt right now. I mean, at a certain point, we're just going to be demanding to start looking through the passport pages to make sure there were no stamps from 2020 on politicians' passports, which, you know what, maybe that's actually what we need to do before uh, Parliament resumes, just, just, just to have a bunch of reporters lined up on Ottawa and they just have to check the passports. And, oh, well, you know, you got a stamp from uh, St. Lucia there, uh, you know what, we got to throw you under the bus now too. 
And listen, I'm not one to defend politicians because there is a high bar for ethics, but we can't let this travel witch hunt become a distraction from the very real problems that exist. I'm a lot more concerned with politicians locking down free people than I am with politicians availing themselves of the liberties of free people. And that's the problem here. If we get so focused on what they are doing, we lose sight of what they're telling us we can't do. And that is the real battleground. And as we are now in 2021, the year that we were supposed to be free of all of this, we cannot let ourselves buy into the lockdown regime mentality. And that's the whole point. Remember how the goalposts have moved time and time again, from two weeks to flatten the curve, to just a little bit more, to just a little bit more, to then at uh, September when Justin Trudeau spoke, it was, all right, Thanksgiving's a write-off, but we've got a shot at Christmas. Christmas passed, New Year's passed, we're into 2021, and we are still more locked down than we have ever been, or at least as much. The UK is plunging itself into another lockdown. Australia has been vaunted as the success, but Australia has had to deny its own citizens their rights as citizens to get to where it is. And that's not particularly sustainable because at a certain point, they're going to have to start letting Australians back in the country. And when that happens, they're going to start dealing with the same problems that they've been pretending don't exist. So if you accept that we're in this for the long haul, which we are, you need to accept that we have to find ways to live our lives. And that is going to be the real battleground for the next month in particular in 2021. It, so let's not focus on the politicians that wanted to live their lives. Let's just make sure all of us seek the right to do so as well. Back in a moment with more of The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. So when we talk about the return to normal, we can't lose sight of what normal really is. This was a column in the Globe and Mail. When the pandemic is over, we should continue wearing masks. It was written by a Toronto journalist or an expat journalist now living in Paris, Vivian Song. And she says, since late August, masks have been mandatory in public spaces in Paris. She says the streets are filled with half-covered, semi-anonymous faces, serving as an omnipresent reminder that we are living under threat of a deadly virus. She says, in quick time, it's become as normal to grab your mask when you head out the door as remembering your house keys, a part of a daily routine, no longer an eccentric quirk exclusive to Asian countries. She says, what if face masks continue to be used as a tool in managing public health during regular flu season? What if we stop politicizing the face covering, which has been maligned as a muzzle and a violation of civil liberties, and normalize the mask as simply an effective barrier to keep our harmful germs in and deadly particle pollution out? And she goes on to basically say that we should normalize the mask, make it a part of everyday life in perpetuity. And this is a, a dangerous rhetoric because it basically tells us that we have to cover our faces which is something that people in some parts of the world actually die for wanting to do and get punished and thrown behind bars for wanting to do, is to say that we should actually cover our faces and that's the way we should live our lives. And in a lot of ways, it would be a first world problem for some people to say, oh, you know, I don't want to wear a mask. But th there is a lot riding on this because she mentions that we should depoliticize the mask. Well, she's actually putting forward an argument that is inherently political. 
that we should deny people the right to show their face in public if that's what they want. Now, I don't believe that it will be that uncommon in future years when masks are no longer mandatory to see people wearing them voluntarily. She is right that that has been, up until this point, a quirk in some Asian countries, and you see people import that quirk to Canada and to elsewhere. I see, I, I, for example, I'm in a city that has a high percentage of Chinese students because it's a university city, and a lot of times you'll see them wear masks. Before it was cool to wear masks, or by cool I mean mandatory. But that cultural normalization is different than the legal normalization and basically the mandating of this. And that's the concern that I have, because at this point, we know there's not going to be one day where someone wakes up and flips a switch and says, okay, the pandemic is now over. So for unwinding a lot of these civil liberties issues that have come up during the pandemic, it's going to be very difficult to foresee a day when someone will say, okay, you know what, we're turning uh, the switch off, and that's that. Now, part of the thing that makes it a little bit more viable for that to happen is that a lot of the structuring of these rules are that they have natural sunset clauses in them. So someone will put an emergency order in place the last 28 days and they keep renewing it, but it's not like something is on the books permanently until they they choose to rescind it. It's that uh, they have to eventually keep renewing it or stop renewing it. So in that sense, yeah, there will be a day when they decide, okay, we're not going to renew it. But even so, I can't imagine we are going to get to it all anytime soon, that day where someone says, you know what, no longer is a mask required in public. No longer does a business need to amend its way of doing things. No longer does uh, society have to adapt around this thing. So that's not going to happen, which means that there's going to be a lot more of a push for things like what Vivian Song is pushing for here, which is trying to make the present reality the new normal, which we have to push back against. We can't accept that this is something that is how life manifests. We cannot accept that this is a situation that we should be embracing. No, this is a crappy period of time. I'm not denying that. And I know I differ from a lot of you watching and that I think the COVID-19 pandemic is real and does need to be taken seriously, but that doesn't mean we have to put our lives on hold indefinitely. We work around it, but these are workarounds. This is not how life is now. I mean, just as an amusing aside to this, even cows have to wear masks now. Yeah, this is a story on ctvnews.ca. A UK company has developed a burp-catching device for cows in hopes that the invention will curb greenhouse gas emissions. So, uh, you know that flatulent cows are apparently the greatest threat to global warming. Well, we may not be able to catch the uh, gas coming out of the rear end, but we can catch it coming out of the front end with a muzzle-like contraption that monitors the percentage of methane being released by a cow when it detects an excessive amount of gas, it converts methane gas into water and CO2 and releases it from the device. So apparently this is going to be how we uh, save the planet. AOC is just going to be so thrilled about this. But here's the point. When even the cows are wearing masks, we can say that the new normal has become a little bit do normal for my liking. Well, one thing's returning to normal, and that is we are getting back into politicking mode with a potential election on the horizon. We'll talk about that up next with Mark Emery here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show.
Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. I know everyone has been in pandemic mode, lockdown mode, except for all those politicians that decide they don't want to follow the rules that they're forcing us to comply with. But remember, there is still the possibility in Canada of an election at any point, which means all political parties are in the process of looking for candidates, MPs seeking re-election, first-timers entering the fray, and in some cases, long-time veterans of the political process getting back into it. One name that scrolled across my Twitter feed in this regard is Mark Emery, the Prince of Pot, who said he's going to be seeking a nomination for the People's Party of Canada in the upcoming election. Mark Emery joins me on the line now. Mark, good to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on today. Nice to see you, Andrew. So you've run, I think, at all levels of government, if I'm not mistaken, provincially. Oh, 12 uh, times. Yeah. So wh- why do you want to suffer through this again? Well, because it's it's necessary. And I, and I don't actually, I enjoy campaigning. Don't get me wrong. I've run for 12. Uh, I've run in 12 campaigns. My first was running uh, for the Libertarian Party of Canada in 1980. I ran for Alderman in Ward 3 in London in 82 and 85. Those were probably the most enjoyable campaigns because it's worth going door to door and meeting everybody. And I only lost by about 500 votes in each one of them. So, you know, you, you have a way better chance if you're running municipally. That having been said, uh, the most work involved in politics is in municipal office because people live by you there and they mm-hmm. get hold of you and they complain about stuff. I remember when I was campaigning in Ward 3, you know, I would people didn't really want to talk about the billions of dollars the government spends. They wanted to talk about the flooding that happened to block away or the neighbor beside them. It's got trash built up on the driveway. It was all these small kind of concerns that you could actually probably do something about um, as opposed to the larger issues where one MLA or one MP really in the modern era, same with the United States in Congress, has absolutely no power whatsoever to influence anything. Um, It's all done from the PMO's office or the premier's office. And then a diktat comes down and, uh, you know, tells people what they're supposed to vote for and think. So for me, the last time I ran was of all things in the, for the green party of British Columbia in 2009 I don't really regret any campaigns. I actually even supported Trudeau in 2015 because he promised to legalize pot. And although I have an incredible long list of complaints about the uh, legal cannabis regime, the fact that I'm going to be working at my brother's shop selling legal cannabis, uh, you know, in a few months is kind of a testament to at least that turned out to be okay. Um, You know, there's over 1,100 legal stores in Canada. There's 250 legal producers you know, so and there's far fewer criminal offenses being made anymore uh, and charges. So, you know, to some degree, that was a very effective thing to do, legalizing cannabis. But it was done in such a cynical, horrible way that it made me realize that every bit of legislation is done corruptly, cynically. It's meant to, uh, to reward party faithful insiders uh, because, you know, they basically gave the entire cannabis industry to a bunch of corporate money men who have nothing to do with legalizing cannabis and really didn't know anything about cannabis. But that, you know, that was the government's plan, right? Take it away from the activists to put the money in the hands of the controllable, regulatable corporate elite. And, uh, you know, so it's been a struggle for me because I'm not legally allowed to own a cannabis store because I have a criminal record for cannabis. Um, you know, I, I had been waiting seven months just to get my retail cannabis manager's license to manage a shop that's run by someone else 
um, and I've been waiting seven months. And I've had three interviews with the Ontario Provincial Police. I had to answer 135 written questions. I had to supply tax information. And this is to um, work I, in a, I mean, and I'm not trying to do this. Just to have a job, yeah, to have a $20 an hour job as a manager. Um, I've had to wait seven months and I had $750 for that license too, by the way. And uh, like I say, I had to give them tax returns for the last four years, my credit card statements, my bank statements for the last year. Like I said, three, <laughs> three interviews with the OPP, 135 written questions, a very intrusive nature yeah. too. Um, just so I can work in someone else's shop. <laughs> yeah, you should be running on an anti-red tape platform just on, on this alone. But, it, but actually, I have to ask you about that. Because be a you... lot of, that, that will be part of the platform because in order to get Canada yeah. started again, we're going to have to strip down a lot of regulations. Because um, you need... actually staked considerable uh, you know, periods of your life, not just advocating, but serving times behind bars, trying to get uh, marijuana, not just legalized, but I'd say normalized in a lot of ways as well, beyond what it was already. Uh, here you are, you have a criminal record. You were proven right in many regards because the government did eventually legalize it, despite these issues that we were just talking about. But are you politically a one-trick pony? I mean, is that the only issue you care about even now? Well, I've never just cared about cannabis. I mean, I read Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged in October 1979. I think October 17th, I started it. And that's a red letter day in my life because it changed everything. So, of course, really what I'm really concerned is what I call the COVID dictatorship that we're under at all levels of government, where there's no opposition except for wonderful Randy Hillier. Um, but there's essentially no opposition to the complete state control of our entire way of life. We've lost every constitutional guarantee in the last year of assembly, of speech. Censorship is rampant. Uh, we can't go visit family. We can't, you can't even breathe legally, really, without wearing a mask, to me, is highly inhibiting. Um, it means you're breathing in your secondhand exhaust all the time. Uh, it's uncomfortable. It's humiliating. It's demeaning. And I think largely ineffective at controlling COVID. Whatever the government's been doing hasn't been working, and now they're ratcheting it up so you know they're forcing businesses to close to me that's illegal i would never i wouldn't close anything My, when i'm campaigning i'm going to tell people you know a free society you have to be responsible so you're responsible for your own health so i wouldn't close the stadiums i wouldn't close the arenas i wouldn't stop concerts i wouldn't close restaurants i wouldn't do any of that i would let people make decisions you want to stay quarantined you say quarantine but i wouldn't be offering all this free money either uh, that's a terrible burden for future generations to have to pay, what, $400 billion? We went into debt in the last 12 months in dealing with COVID. That's a staggering burden to generations yet to come. It's a horrible thing. Um, yeah. the, a deficit financing was probably the worst thing, along with the income tax, that modern governments have ever uh, indulged in. So we have a lot of crises in Canada coming up. We're going to, and I'm not going to get nobody, you know, I'm going to campaign seriously. I'm going to try and raise $10,000 and launch at least a credible campaign. But let's face it, most of the country supports the dictatorship. Um, they are endorsing these horrible new, new ways of life in Canada um, because a lot of people are still getting money. They're still yeah. getting paid. There are government workers, doctors, medical, you know, all the people who work for government, they're doing a lot less work. And getting well, yes, yeah, it's that old Margaret Thatcher line that a, a government that relies on Peter to pay Paul will always have Paul's support or, or something along those lines. And that was a brilliant line, too. And so um, I haven't actually participated much in the cannabis debate 
um, because it, it's cynical and corruptly written. Um, but nonetheless, it's done. It's the way it is. The regulations over time will evolve to slightly improve. Uh, and I'm going to be working every day in a legal cannabis shop doing things that I'm not particularly fond of, like selling government regulated cannabis. There's four taxes on top of it that keep the price higher than it should be. Uh, I pity the producers of cannabis in Canada. They have such a tremendous amount of regulation that's added so much cost and caused a lot of them just to go bankrupt or suffer. Um, and th that was also cynically done. So a lot of the wrong people got into that business uh, who had no business getting into cannabis and don't know anything about it. But anyway, no, I'm, I've always been a champion of liberty. Um, when I've run for elections in the past, I, I did organize uh, 79 candidates for a full slate in British Columbia in 2001 for the BC Marijuana Party, which was a wonderful campaign and legendarily uh, executed. We had a lot of libertarian type people uh, working on that campaign. You know, so I, I, I've run for mayor of Vancouver. I've run for provincial office in two provinces, but I'm really excited to come back home to London uh, and I'll be living in the London Fanshawe riding on Hamilton Road. So I'm really excited to run and go door knocking in my own community. Um, that feels good. Yeah. And if I can, my target is 10%. If I get 5%, I'll be content. If I get 10% of the vote, I'd be extremely happy. Only Max Bernier got more than 10%. He got 33% in his riding in the last election. And I'm hoping he gets uh, his seat back in Beauce, Quebec again. That's really the biggest thing I would like to do is, is draw attention to Max Bernier and the party and, and bring new members aboard. It was in London that you really fought, again, a very important crusade against the Sunday shopping ban in which government was telling people that they couldn't open their businesses one out of seven days. Did you ever imagine that uh, fast forward a few decades and, and we'd now be seeing governments telling businesses they have to shut down seven days of the week? Well, it's, it's, it's actually a holocaust of business proportions. It's a terrible thing where we lose 10,000 restaurants in the last year. Now, restaurants are high risk and they tend to go under. But when a government orders a restaurant to close, that's yeah. going to increase the mortality. Yeah, there's the natural market risk. And then there's the yeah. boot of government saying you've got to close. Well, listen, you can't make money on takeout anything. Um, and all the cannabis shops in Ontario are under lockdown. And so they have to do delivery or curbside. That's going to cut their business in half um, and send a lot of people back to their friends in the black market. So that's a very unwise decision from a a prohibition versus free market point of view. If you're going to lock down all these shops, you're going to send people to alternate places to acquire substances like cannabis. Um, Except now we need like bootleg clothing stores, uh, you know, and all the, and bootleg uh, sporting goods stores and all these other things. I mean, because now everything, everyone's being told you can't work. Well, the problem is, is we're enriching Amazon and all the big box retailers. And this is also very bad. Um, because the innovation, uh, you know, and the and the neighborhood, uh, the neighborhood reflection, you know, to me, all of this is bad. Um, working from remotely at home is bad because eventually, uh, in the old days, you know, the only people you had to compete with were the people who lived in your neighborhood who could make that office physically in twenty or thirty minutes. Some realistic amount of time it takes you to get to work. So you'd hire people from the community, from the neighborhood. But if you're working remotely, 
from home, it doesn't matter where you live. You could be in India, Bangalore. You could be in Pakistan, Nigeria, any number of places around the world where they speak English and do that job. So I think Canadians are going to be dislocated from these office jobs by the hundreds of thousands over the next few years because it's a lot cheaper to get someone in Nigeria or Pakistan or India or any place where they speak English, the Caribbean, um, and there's English speakers everywhere in the world. And, you know, uh, $5 an hour would be a lot for a lot of people, you know, in these countries. So the idea that employers under these onerous circumstances or for these big corporations that are always looking at the bottom line and not so much what's good for the neighborhood uh, are going to be entertaining the idea of getting a lot of foreign workers doing all this uh, remote office stuff. I will ask you, Mark, why do you think the PPC is the answer to a lot of these issues? Because after the last election, a lot of people who thought the People's Party and Maxime Bernier had a little bit of momentum saw the party didn't really make a blip. Maxime lost his seat. Why do you think that party can answer some of these challenges you've expressed? Well, I think the Conservatives got that one shot to prove themselves um, and they blew it. And the, the bottom line is, I think the People's Party will become much more popular because they're a clear alternative to the Conservatives, Liberals, Greens, NDP. Those four parties of the last year have endorsed the same totalitarian, authoritarian measures. They've all been part of the COVID dictatorship. Uh, at the local level in Toronto, it's been horrific. The provincial levels, terrible uh, dictatorship type uh, governance. And all four major parties in the parliament have supported these actions. Only Pierre Polivre um, has been really critical and even then only of parts, not of the dictatorship itself, uh, because the conservatives ultimately would behave just the same as the liberals with some minor tinkering differences. There's absolutely no difference between Aaron O'Toole and Justin Trudeau, except for some reason, Aaron O'Toole looks 20 years older uh, and he's younger than Trudeau, which is very strange. Um, I mean, for me, Aaron O'Toole looks older than me and I'm 62. Um, he reminds me of like my great uncle or something like that, which to me is a very bad image. Um, they should, a 42 year old who looks 42 would be an ideal looking candidate. That's why I like Max. Max is brilliant. He's principled, wonderful guy. I've met him many times. Uh, I've supported him from the outset. Uh, it's the only time I've been a member of the conservative parties when he ran for the leadership. I joined, I've never actually voted for the conservatives in a federal election. Um, and as soon as Max formed the People's Party, I was on board. I'm probably one of the first 10 people to sign up for that party. And I've never been disappointed. I wasn't disappointed with the election results. I've never been disappointed with anything Max has said. Everything Max says, I agree with entirely. I'm more extreme, of course. You know, I think we should be very cautious about the Communist Party of China. I think uh, the loyalties of many people who call themselves Canadian are suspect from a variety of reasons, When because they, they put their own they put their own background before the, the, the good of Canadians. Um, to me, we're all Canadians. Uh, we all benefit by a free society. And I think we have a lot of people in Canada who don't really want a free society. And we've got a lot of advocates in government for that, you know, like the Greens and the NDP are terrible for these woke kind of issues of critical, uh, critical race theory uh, gender ideologies, all these things I'm opposed to, and I will bring up in the campaign. So I'm going to be offending people whenever I get a chance to, because, you know, I'm totally opposed to the trans ideology. I'm totally opposed to critical race theory. I don't think Canada is at all a racist society. I think it's one of the most beautiful, in, most 
completely integrated societies in the world. If somebody said Canada was a racist society, I would say, well, tell me one that's less racist because I don't believe there is a country in the world mm -hmm. that's less racist than Canada. I've been to 40 of them in my life. And I can tell you that most of them are homogenous communities. They don't welcome outsiders to settle permanently. You go to Japan, you only see Japanese people. You go to China, you only see Chinese people. You go to Nigeria, you only see Nigerian people. You go to India, you see only Indian people. You don't see the cosmopolitan range of hundreds of races and ethnicities that you do in Canada, who've all managed to get along. But what we have is governments that stoke the fires of division, stoke the fires of separation of resentment and, and, and put us against each other, which is a, you know the number one classic political ploy of all governments is divide and conquer. Get the people fighting each other and make the government look like they have the solutions to our conflicts, but they are creating these conflicts. They don't solve conflicts. So you know I've got probably more issues I'd like to discuss in an election campaign than Max would probably even endorse. Um, although I sh I'm pretty sure he would agree with them all. I would never say anything I didn't think the People's Party would fundamentally support. Uh, but you know what? I still have to get that nomination. I still have to fill out all the paperwork. You know, when I list all my criminal offenses, I've got 40 appearances in prisons and jails. I've been jailed uh, for cannabis in every province. Uh, I did time in six states of the United did States. Did you do the territories? Uh, I was arrested in uh, the Yukon, but that was dropped. Oh, okay. So I can't say I've been put in jail overnight there, but certainly every other province uh, and multiple times in some. And uh, so I need the nomination. I'll need Max's endorsement. That'll make him nervous, even though he likes me personally and what have you. But I'm not an easy guy for any leader to have to uh, stand behind because I don't feel that inhibited about what I say. All right. Well, best of luck on the campaign trail. Mark Emery seeking the PPC nomination in London Fanshawe down in my neck of the woods in southwestern Ontario. Mark, best of luck and thanks very much for coming on today. Hey, thanks, Andrew. That was Mark Emery, and that does it for us for today. We'll be back in just a few days with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. This is The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.